shiny, it looks, it's valuable, it's heavy, it's got substance to it, but actually it's of no value. You couldn't use it to buy anything ever, you know? And I could even bring a $50 bill up here and, and show it to you and say, look, now we have some value. You know, here's the, the, one of the president's faces on it, and Ulysses S. Grant, here's his face on it. This has value. But, but you also have to ask the question, for how long does it have value, right? Does it have value when you're dead? Does it have value when, when, when it can't actually buy anything, you know? You know, everything's getting more expensive these days, right? It's like $50 doesn't go very far anymore. So, so how do you know, just kind of this question that we're kind of wrestling with, how do you know what, what God is doing and what's truly valuable in the world? How can you figure it out? And not only in the things that in, are happening, but in yourself as well. How do you know when you're connected to the king? How do you know when you're getting, experiencing the value of God working in your life? How do you know that? And we want to look at 2 Samuel chapter 1 and see how even in seed form, the king is at work making judgments and actually calling us, not so much because he knows, God knows what he's doing, the king knows what he's doing. It's much more about our response. It's much more about what we're loyal to and how we show that loyalty that really matters. And so that's what we want to see as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 1 together. And the whole point here, in a sense, is don't be a false follower of the king and admire of his greatness, but be a true follower of the king by fearing him and grieving the things that he grieves. And so that's where I'm headed this morning, because in some ways, false disciples are attracted to bigness or success. False disciples will be attracted to material benefits. It's like this coin. They'll think, oh, look, something big, something shiny, something cool, when when the road gets tough and when things happen and when the king does things you don't expect, then you turn. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, if you have any knowledge at all of human nature, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness. But if there's any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Admiring the truth instead of following is, is just as dubious a fire as the fire of, of romantic love, which at the turn of the hand can be changed into exactly the opposite, to hate, jealousy, and revenge. Christ, however, never asked for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. He consp- consistently spoke of followers and disciples. There's a huge difference between admiring something and obeying someone. Even in today's world, right, we, we have things like Instagram where we follow the people that we admire. New, the New York Times calls them the quasi-spiritual influencers and instavangelists. Why? Because in some ways they're saying, just admire me, admire what's happening, and it, you'll, you'll be blessed, you'll be encouraged by just admiring But Jesus is saying, and and we see this even in the example of David, who is a type of Christ, that it's much more than admiring his greatness. 
and, and, and seeking to kind of suck up to the king, so to speak. It's much more about who you're willing to follow, who you're willing to fear, and we see that in the story. So 2 Samuel chapter 1 says, On the third day, so David had been re- returned to Ziklag, two days later, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to, to the ground and paid homage So he bows down to him, which, of course, would not be normal at this point, but he's indicating something has changed, which we know is that Saul is dead, right? David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for my anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So if you know the story, right, you know that this is different from what is recorded in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me, and the the armor bearer won't do it, and so Saul falls in his spear himself, right? So you have two different stories. Which one's, what's going on here? Well, obviously... The narrator knows we know the first story in order to tell us the second story. We know this guy's lying. We know up front this guy's lying. And we're wondering, can David figure it out? Can can David know what's actually going on here? And and, and yet in this part of this point here is is I I want to just kind kind of explore this a little bit is that David's going to expose this false loyalty because he's going to notice a lack of fear. He's going to notice a lack of fear but before I get there, I just want to, can I just talk a little bit about how do we know what's true and not true in our world today? How do we know what's true and not true? Because there's a lot of stories out there like this is going on and that's going on and this is why it's happening and that's, this is why it's happening. And, you know, you, depending on which news source you listen to, you're going to get a very different view of what's happening in the world today. Can I just lament here for a second? Can I lament? It grieves me that we live in a country where the media is so divided and you don't know who's telling what story and what's true and what's not true. When you have the media telling you stories so you don't know what's true and what's not true, you know what? Everybody's telling the truth and everybody's lying and nobody can tell the difference. And you know what? That's really bad for our country. That's not good when you don't know who to trust, when you don't know what story is being spun for what reason, how is that ever good for a country? And fortunately, we have a king who's wise in David, who can pierce through lies, but let's be honest, sometimes we wonder, 
We read one source, we're like, man, this is terrible. We read another source, and they're like, this is, oh, this is awesome. And we're wondering, which one's true? Which one can I trust? And that is not good. And this is something we should lament as, as a people, that, are, that, that the people who are supposed to be telling us what's going on, we can't even trust to, to, to tell us the truth. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox for a second. Um, but, I, but I want you to see that, th- that this isn't anything new, right? It's not anything new for, for people to tell lies to people in power, to get what they want. And here the Amalekites, as we'll find out, is, is telling a lie, and David ultimately exposes it. But first, it says here, just continue the story on. It says, David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the lack of, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. So David gains some more information here. He understands that this man is the son of a sojourner. He adds something in. So this isn't just some random Amalekite that was caught in the battle. This is someone who was on Israel's side fighting as kind of a, uh, again, someone who's not a native Israelite, part of the, the nation of Israel, but who understood Israel's customs, understood Israel's religion, who was part of the country. You, you get the, the difference here by adding that part of the information in. And then he goes on, so David, that helps David to understand something. So David responds this way. He says, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David's like, you should know the stories by now. You should know the stories have gone out. I've, I have never put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I haven't attacked him. I've had the chance to kill him, and I haven't done him because he's the Lord's anointed. You understand the religion of Israel. You understand that, that we believe God put this man in place, in charge at this time, and we're going to trust that that is what God's will is, and he's going to work out that deal. And you weren't afraid to, 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 sol- to take that into your own hands and solve it yourself? And that lack of fear helped David to understand where the lie was coming from. Because he goes on to say, Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David's like, Whether you killed him or not, you were the... If you, if you actually killed him, it was the wrong thing to do. And if you're lying, I don't trust you anyway. Uh-huh. And I just back up here and point out a few things about the Amalekite reference, just to kind of help us catch some things here. Remember, Saul was supposed to kill all of the Amalekites, right? God, why, why? Because God had ordained them to be killed because when Israel was coming into the land of Canaan and, and going into the promised land, the, the Amalekites had attacked them from behind, attacked their weak and vulnerable. When they were weak and vulnerable, and then, and so God had put judgment on them for doing that. 
And Saul was supposed to, to wipe them out, to judge them, because they had attacked the weak and vulnerable. Here is an Amalekite doing the exact same thing, attacking the weak and vulnerable. And David can't for say for certain whether he killed Saul or not. He just knows you're doing the same thing. You did, that deserves death. David isn't afraid to execute judge, God's judgment where Saul wanted to twist God's judgment to benefit himself. David's not interested in false loyalty He's interested in true loyalty, and it begs the question for us as well. Are we truly loyal if we don't fear the king's judgment on what God hates? Can I just read 1 Peter chapter 1, right? It says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is saying this. He's saying, hey, you're going through your time of your exile and you claim to be a child of God? Well, then conduct yourselves with fear. You should fear appropriately that you're God's child. You should fear appropriately that God hates sin. Gerald Vaughn put it this way. He says, to grow in wisdom and love is not to lose all fear of God. It is to change our fear of God. It is to pass from the servile fear of the slave, the fear of punishment, to the loving reverence of the son, fearing to offend the, his father, and in the end, the purely selfless fear of the lover, the fear of hurting what you love. He's saying there's, there's an appropriate fear that needs to be part of our relationship with God, that we would conduct ourselves in light of the fact that God is holy. I read this story, uh, this analogy, and I think it's a good one. Uh, we, we were able to go to the Grand Canyon last uh, summer, right? When everything was going on, we were able to get there, and nobody's there because of COVID. But, uh, but we had a good time there, and of course, when you're going there, you're reading about it, and you're reading stories, and there's all, frankly, there's always a story in the news about someone who gets too close to the edge, slips, and falls to the death, Right? And so as parents, you're going to the Grand Canyon and you're like, your eyes are on your children like hawks. Like, no one's going too close to the edge. I'm not going too close to the edge. We're going to take pictures of, yes, us at the Grand Canyon, but we're not getting too close to the edge. Why? Because you have to have a healthy fear of the edge, right? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It draws you in. It's glorious to see. But there are limits that you can't cross. Or you get hurt. It's the same way with God. He's beautiful, glorious, wonderful, merciful, loving. But he is God. He's holy. And you have to treat him as such. And here we see that David sees that in this Amalekite is not that appropriate fear, that respect of who God is and what God is doing in the life of Israel. And he's like, this isn't true loyalty. This isn't someone that I want to trust. This is not someone who, who, is, who, has, who has God's interest in mind, and I'm not going to allow this to continue in your own life. 
Do you have a desire for holiness? Do, do you put away sin? Are, are, are you regularly considering your life saying, you know what, I've, this sin is starting to gain foothold in my life. I need to tear out those weeds. I need to, to, to consider how I, I might be sinning in a situation. Because if you're not considering that, you have to ask the question, where is your heart for your king? Where is your heart for the one who died for you and rose again? Where is the heart for the one who wants to rescue you from sin and death and deliver you and walk with you and love you? Where, where is your heart for him? If there's no desire for holiness, if there's no fear of God in your life in that sense, then you might consider how loyal you are to the king and whether God is actually at work in your heart and in your life or not. James 4 puts it this way. He says, um, says, don't speak evil against your brothers, right? Because if if you're going to speak evil against your brother, you're acting like the judge. (laughs) But there's only one judge and and lawgiver. And you know what? You're not it. (laughs) So don't speak evil against your brothers. Instead, seek to, to bless and encourage. Will you use your tongue without fear, is his point. So, so this first point here, and just considering what God is doing, David here clearly exposes, through a lack of fear, the fact that this man is not of God, God is not at work through him, you should not trust this God, and ultimately he deserves death because he claims to have killed the king. But there's one way that we see loyalty exposed in a good way, and it's David himself. Notice again what happens, verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. What we see here is David's loyalty exposed through his grief. A true loyalty exposed through his grief. Notice also that he doesn't he doesn't deal with the question of justice initially. He had to know, and he did know, that there's questions about this guy's story. But instead of questioning the story, he grieves first. He's, he's, he's not so interested in justice as he's interested in grief. He's like, man, the, the king who God had appointed is dead. The, Jonathan, the brother I loved, is dead. That's worth grieving over, and they grieve the rest of the day. And then David deals with the young man, but then notice what it goes on to say. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was more extraordinary, was extraordinary as surpassing the love of women. 
How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. I'm talking in the past about how that he's the reference there to his surpassing the love of women is Jonathan gave up everything for, for David. He's, he's like, I just, Jonathan was next in line to be king. He's like, I don't care, David, you're going to take that place. He, 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 had, he had division between himself and Saul over David, and yet Jonathan was loyal to his father and loved his father and died alongside of his father. And here David laments. One of the true ways that you can know that God is working in your life is by looking at what you grieve over. It's noticed by whether you're fearing the right things or not, but it's also noticed by what you're grieving over. What are you grieving over? Here we see David grieving over his enemies. Or his enemy in, in Saul. And you know, if I was a, a Judah person at this time and I heard this, I'd be like, David, this is your enemy. You're grieving over him? David, he, he wanted to kill you. You're grieving over him? David, you know, you don't, he doesn't deserve this kind of respect. But David grieved for Saul because Saul was the anointed of God. Saul was the one who had lifted up the nation of Israel and united them and defended them and provided for them. And he, had, he had done so many good things in Israel. David wasn't just looking at all the ways that Saul had tried to kill David. He was looking at all the good that David had done. And he's looking at Jonathan, the one who loved him so faithfully. And he's, he's marveling at the love that he had received from Jonathan, and he's grieving over its loss. How the mighty have fallen. And one of the, one of the things we do when we grieve is we teach, and that's what David is saying here. He's, he's like, I want to teach Israel how to grieve, even their enemies, even, even people that are at odds with them. I want to, I want to teach them to grieve that. I was, there's a story uh, called The Interpreter. It was turned into a movie. Uh, and in, in that, there's a there's this situation in, in, uh, where they're confronting this person and they're kind of explaining why they're not being vengeful about the situation. And they're like, in, in the coup people in Africa, which is what this person was from, they, you know, when, when, they're, when someone is, is killed, they're reminded, they're, they're like, hey, you, let's... Uh, Let's remember the good, for one thing. But then they're like, what, what happens is there's a year of mourning over the person who's died. But if there's a person who murdered that person, at the end of the year, they bring that person to a lake bound up, and they drop that person in the water. And at, at that point in time, the family of the person who's murdered has a, has a chance. They can either go in and rescue that person who's, who's been dropped in the water, or they can let the person drown in the water. And if they let the person drown, the people understand, okay, justice is served, but you're going to go on mourning the rest of your life. But instead, if you go and rescue the person, it's understood that what you're saying is justice isn't, isn't going to be fully solved in this life. But by rescuing that person, I'm trying to create good in the situation 
and you won't be mourning the rest of your life. You won't be sad the rest of your life. Now, if that's true for the coup people, how much more true should it be for Christians, right? That we, instead of holding and seeking vengeance over our enemies, we mourn their loss. We mourn the good that they have done. We mourn the, the, the losses we experience. Let me ask you this question, and it should be pretty easy considering COVID. There's, there's so many things that we've lost over this year, lost time with friends. Families had weddings, and we couldn't go to them. We, we lost, lost time being, being able to enjoy one another's company. We lost time in seeing, seeing different ways God's worked as a result because we couldn't share stories and be like, oh, look, look what God did. What do you mourn? What do you consider? Or you just, the way you mourn is so, is so important in that sense, right? You're not mourning it saying, oh, woe is me. I hate that person because what they, what, what they did to me. I've just lost all these things. Or are you mourning just the loss itself and considering the good that was lost in the process. Second Corinthians 7, Paul talks to the church about this in his confrontation with them, and he says this. In 2 Corinthians 7, I gotta get there. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. He's saying, hey, you grieved appropriately. I confronted you about sin, and you grieved appropriately over that sin, and it led to, to joy and, and, and renewal of a relationship, and, and you're back at peace both with me and with God. Let's rejoice over that. Let's not continue to grieve. Let's rejoice over the grief and what it brought. But there is a type of grief that leads to death. So as you're considering what God is doing in the world, what kind of grief is, are you doing? You can do a grief that makes you angry. And so you point fingers at everyone and you say, they're the problem, they're the, they're, that, that, they've caused the problem. Or you can grieve in such a way to say, I just, we, we lost something good. We lost something good. But God can take even what is, we've lost and turn it into good, right? So there's these, just these two things. And I have to ask you a question kind of back at the beginning, right? What's truly valuable to you? What are you banking your life on? If, if you took this, this coin, right, and you, you, and you tried to take it to the bank and say, deposit it for me, it, because I want to save it, they would laugh at you. They'd be like, that's ridiculous. You, you're, you're actually wasting money to save this coin because it's, it's worth nothing, and when we hold on to grudges and when we, when we focus on the wrong things in our lives, what happens is we, we build our lives with no value to them. And 
not only that, when we look at God's kingdom and we consider what, what is God doing in the world, we're looking at totally the wrong things. And then we wonder, well, what is, this is worthless, maybe. This is not great. God's not doing anything here because we're all focused on the wrong thing. But if we consider the holiness of God, if we consider and step back and say, you know what? God is holy. The way I act, what I do, that's truly important. Do I have that fear of him that that draws me to him? It's like, this is amazing. This is wonderful. But I want to treat it as as having some really appropriate thing. I'm going to treat it right. Is that how you're approaching God? We don't like to talk about sadness. At least I don't. I grew up in the 90s. The 90s was all about positive thinking, you know. How positive can you be? Take every situation and spin it to positive, you know. And it's, it's hard to be sad, frankly. My wife loves it when I cry. She's like, oh, it's amazing. He's got emotions. This is awesome, you know. Why? Because I grew up in the 90s. We didn't, we didn't do that. You know. I'm glad Dave had to cry, not me this morning. Except Dave, he made me cry. You know, and that, no. right? it's, good. It's, good. it's good to grieve three young ladies leaving. Well, hopefully they won't leave forever, but you understand. right? It's good to grieve the losses we experience, but we should not grieve in such a way that we start to get angry with God and point our fingers at God and, and lash out at the people around us. We should instead grieve and be like, oh, look what we've lost. And David does that for Israel, and your king wants to do that for you. He wants to help you step back from your grief and say, look at the good things. Look at what God has done. And maybe you've lost them right now temporarily, but you know what? I'm the kind of king that turns every loss into ultimate glory. I'm the kind of king that takes every sorrow and turns it ultimately to gladness. Joy is coming in the morning. That's what we believe as Christians. We believe that the kingdom of God is like a seed planted in the ground. We don't know what's going to happen, but, we've, but just like Christ was planted in the ground and three days later, what happened? He rose again from the grave. We have hope. And God uses the small, little, insignificant things to create huge, amazing blessings and honor. That's the kind of God we have. So if we focus on the wrong things, we don't see what God is doing. We miss out on the greatness of how God works. So again, what are you fearing? Are you fearing the wrong things? Are you fearing what people say or how the future is gonna how the future is gonna pan out? Or are you fearing God? And then are you grieving, but grieving with hope? Grieving, recognizing God, God can even take the losses we experience and do amazing things through them.
Because God is in the business, as we know from 1 Samuel, God is in the business of taking the symbols that we think are important and reminding them they're not as important as who he is and what he's doing in the world. So let's place our hope in him. Let's not look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And let us, therefore, right, not lose heart, but have hope. Because this momentary light affliction that we're all going through is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the greatness and the excellency of the power is not of us. We're nothing. But God is everything. Isn't he awesome? To take a young boy, a shepherd, the last of his family, and make him king. And to take a baby in a manger, driven to Egypt, son of a carpenter, and make him king of kings and lord of lords. One day he's coming back. Let's look to that day. Let's live for that day. Let's fear for that day. And let's grieve for that day. Let's be loyal to our king. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the example of David here as he's just found out that Saul is dead and the, all the problems in some ways are taken care of and yet he's, he doesn't focus on that. He focuses on grieving what he's lost and seeking to, to fear you first and foremost. And sometimes, Lord, we wish in our lives that all the problems would go away. All the difficulties would go away. That we just finally have a day when all our cares are gone and we are free to just do whatever we please. And there is coming a day when we're going to see you face to face. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to be loyal. Help us to rejoice not in our problems going away, but on our fear and respect of you in the midst of those problems. Not that our sorrows have gone away, but that our griefs are appropriate in the midst of those problems. Because our King is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming back for us. And he's going to right all wrongs. And he's going to wipe away all tears. So help us to live for him this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.